It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Everything about going to a black church is like being in a play, in a gospel play. Like it all is wrapped up in one like ongoing performance. The pain and the ecstasy of like being in the church for me is that like the music is so beautiful and the content can be so painful. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac. Today, we'll be hearing your fantastic interview with Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Michael R. Jackson, whose voice we just heard. And, you know, just thinking about his musical A Strange Loop had me really nostalgic for nights spent in the theatre as someone who has dedicated a huge amount of his creative energies to theatre. How are you coping with the loss of public performances right now? Well, there's a way that I feel fortunate in that I have a book deadline looming in November. I have a child who's about to start kindergarten. I have this podcast. And I'm actually in the middle of adapting a live multimedia work that I co-created for BAM Next Wave to be uh, streamed online in the fall. And those four things take up an enormous amount of mental energy. So I feel in a weird way, like I don't really have the space or time to miss it. But as soon as I have downtime, I know that longing is just going to come, you know. And uh, I just had a FaceTime coffee chat this morning with a director friend of mine. He actually gave me one of my first jobs in New York City. And at one point I said to him, it's so weird. This is the moment when I ask you what play you're working on and how's it going. And you're not working on a play and we don't know how it's going. We don't know when we're going to come back. (laughs) And he said, yeah. And we don't even know what theaters are going to come back or how long it's going to be or what that's going to look like, you know. No. And I mean, I think that's another one of those things that it's just as well that we can't know just yet because it is not going to be pretty. There are going to be so many companies, not only theaters, but museums, performance spaces, just so many opera houses, opera companies that are just going to close or be a shadow of their former selves. It's hard to see anything positive coming out of this current uh, moment for uh, the arts. So it feels like another thing that is good that we, we have a lot of other stuff eating up our mental space, because if we could really focus on that, we'd be extra sad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the nonprofit arts scene, specifically the nonprofit theater scene in America was essentially, this is a simplification, but Mm. it was essentially created uh, through funding received from the Ford Foundation. And then the idea was the NEA was going to come in and it was going to kind of sustain it from there, which never really happened. And as a result, the theater in America has always been in a state of financial crisis. And so there's not a lot of reserve there's not a lot of surplus there's not a lot of room for Mm -hmm. these this kind of major structural shock and and it is very scary so right now i just try to keep my head down and get my work done 
Indeed. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Michael R. Jackson won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama this year. And Wikipedia informs me that he is the first black musical theatre writer to win the award, which is mind-blowing. What do working listeners who are not familiar with the show need to know about A Strange Loop? Well, one of the things they need to know about the show is that it's incredible. It's it's really brilliant. It's one of the best musicals I had seen in years, and it is also streamable. You can go to Spotify or wherever you, you know, you can you can listen to it today if you want to. And hopefully you'll be inspired to. But um it is also incredibly dizzying and self-referential. On some level, I think that for many listeners, the work of Charlie Kaufman might be a good <laughs> starting point for the kind of mind that you're dealing with here. That's the screenwriter who wrote Adaptation and... and uh, Being John Malkovich, yeah, uh, yeah. Anomalisa, you know, stuff like that. So A Strange Loop is about a young, gay, black musical theater writer named Usher, played by the actor and comedian Larry Owens, who shares a number of biographical details with Michael, but is also not Michael. (laughs) And Usher is working on a musical that is very much like A Strange Loop, about a character very much like Usher, who is working on a musical very much like Strange Loop, and so on and so forth ad infinitum. And as Usher tries to figure out how to do this, he is surrounded and at times tormented by his thoughts. And I hope the way I said that conveys that Thoughts has a capital T in it. So the Thoughts are the rest of the cast. They're the chorus of the show, and they also play all of its other characters. Wow. Um, What else do we need to know about Michael? Well, one of the things that makes Strange Loop so special is the way that the show really goes there about a host of various subjects. Uh, It's a really fearless musical, and it is not pulling its punches, even while it is incredibly funny. I mean, to just give one obvious example, the song we're going to talk about in today's episode is called AIDS is God's Punishment. The show is provocative, but it's artful at the same time. And I say all of that as a way of answering your question, because I think all of that is true of Michael, who's an artist I admire greatly. Uh, I mentioned this briefly in the interview, but in the years before A Strange Loop's premiere of Playwrights Horizons, you would see Michael posting these kinds of poems to Facebook, and you'd never be sure if they were true stories or not if they were autobiographical or not much like the show and they're addressed to a roommate who may or may not exist and they were these beautiful devastating funny and fearless poems filled with vulnerability and anger about being a black gay man in this world and to me that's michael and that's also his work I have just one last question, which is at one point in the interview, Michael references performing an early piece at Ars Nova. So for folks who don't know, what kind of venue is that? Ars Nova, well... In terms of size, it's actually a quite small venue that's a real pain in the ass to get to. It's on like 54th and the West Side Highway. Uh, But in terms of cultural impact in theater and performance and comedy in New York, it looms very large. I'm pretty sure our previous guest, Cola Scola, has performed there many times. But it's probably best known as the theater that developed and produced the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. All right, well, let's hear your conversation with Michael R. Jackson. What 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to mention that uh, this particular episode, we actually have some bonus content for our Slate Plus listeners. Two really fabulous stories. The first about Liz Fair, the second about Tyler Perry, uh, both of whom were in their own ways important to the development of A Strange Loop and both of whom Michael met while doing the show. And you can join Slate Plus today to support the work we do here on Working and the rest of the magazine. It's only $35 for the first year and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. So, Michael, there's so many things that we could talk about, but I just decided I wanted to leap in with the thing that I've had a lot of curiosity about ever since uh, we learned you were going to come on the show. And that's just... What is your process like right now? Like, where are you? What are you working on? How are you working on it? What are you up to in this moment? In this exact moment, I am in Williamstown, Massachusetts, courtesy of the Williamstown Theater Festival, who brought some artists up to give us some residencies and sort of time away from the city. But I coincidentally had been wanting to come here because I've had this idea for a while of a horror movie that would be set in a town like Williamstown. And I recently, in the last couple of months, the frame of that horror film has come into focus for me. And so I've wanted to really come up here and like drink in the town, watch horror movies and sort of like, you know, just go into that zone. Is this your first non-theatrical project that you're working on? Uh, Technically, yes. I mean, I took screenwriting classes when I was in undergrad, but I've not written a screenplay on my own since then. Is it nice to take a break from the stage and try a different medium out? It, It is, but like in some ways I don't think of it as different because it's still all about the story. And so like I have to go through the same 
in some ways I have to go through the same steps of figuring out like who, what, where, when, why, beginning, mm-hmm. middle, end, you know? In the time since A Strange Loop, which, uh, you know, your breakthrough musical, which was at Playwrights Horizons, in the time since it's closed, several big things have happened. There's been a a global pandemic. You know, you are at Williamstown, but there's only so much of the town you could probably drink in right now. And, and among other things, that pandemic has closed almost every theater in the world. There are also the widespread and ongoing protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And of course, the third thing is you, you, uh, you, well, you won the Pulitzer prize. Um, and so I'm interested, you know, there's a lot going on that like, does that, any of that change your process? Do you have to kind of shut out everything in the world to work? Do you let the world in? I mean, I mean, how is all of that adjusting kind of how you work day to day? It's such a seismic, shift in everything for me to be honest um and so my i guess the way to change my process is that i'm become gotten a lot more internal with with the work that i'm doing and how i do it in some ways um for the most part i've like it's become a very introspective quieter time on my end in terms of process Whereas you feel like your previous uh, process was much more extroverted. Like I I remember you posting, you know, kind of poems or or interesting monologues and ideas on Facebook a lot. For example, there was a, there was a series of poems to a kind of fictional, I think. That was sort of, yeah, that was like 2011 to 2014 kind of years. Right. Was that. And those days are gone. (laughs) Uh, Because too many people are paying attention to what you say now. It's partly that, but it's also that doing that was like me trying to create and have a platform on which to have my work done. And then I think professionally, I had a platform onto which to get my work done. And I just didn't need to use the platform in the same way. So how is that process different if you're not sort of sending your ideas out into the world? Are you finding that to be a challenge? Do you have a hunger to be like, I just really want to post a rant about this thing or, or whatever? Well, there's thing. I do want to post many, many rants about <laughs> many, many, many things. But I like also am not in the mood for a cancellation. Right. Because like everything I want to post will get me canceled in the year 2020. Every single thing. <laughs> I'm so mad about so many things, so many people, so many ideas, so many bandwagons, so many, there's so many things that are like are bothering Michael R. Jackson this day. And yet what I'm finding is that exercising the discipline to put that into my work is what I have to do um, more than anything. Uh, so it's, it just, for me, it's about just being a lot more thoughtful about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Because I feel, especially with theater, at this point, it's so precious. And so, like, I want to make sure that I, like, am giving it the the respect and the honor that I need to give it. Because that's where all of my tension goes, is into my work. There is a lot of that tension and a lot of those, you know, the what is bothering Michael R. Jackson, you know, now in a strange loop, you know, that the, a lot of it's in there. Um, yeah, 18 years of it. 18 years of it. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure even our listeners who are familiar with the show actually know that it took that long to come to fruition. So what is, for people who are unfamiliar with it, what is A Strange Loop? What is the show? What's it about? What's it doing? 
A strange loop is what I call a self-referential as opposed to autobiographical musical about a young black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who's writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who's writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show ad infinitum and sort of sorting through his own perceptions of himself and his own self-hatred. And those are, of course, dramatized as his kind of chorus of thoughts that play various roles throughout the show. Correct. Um, You know, you mentioned that the musical is self-referential rather than autobiographical, which I think is really uh, fascinating. What do you see as the difference between those two things? Because obviously the temptation as a listener or viewer of the show is to treat it as autobiography. And some people do even after I tell them that. But for me, the distinction is I think of an autobiography as being a sort of linear one-to-one ratio of life events to fictional events, whereas A Strange Loop, I drew from my own personal experiences, but I definitely fictionalized quite a lot of it. And so everything isn't just like a dramatization of something that happened in my life. There are some things that that happened, 100%, that's what the thing that happened, but like there are other things that like I made shit up. And so, if anything, it's emotionally autobiographical. I have felt everything that the character Usher, who's the protagonist, has felt. But I have not... It's not a documentary. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, so let's talk about the original version of A Strange Loop. Uh, Was it called A Strange Loop still at that point, or...? Well, in the very beginning, it was only a monologue. I did have no di- thoughts of it being a musical. I had not written any music. I was like, I, it was just a straight up monologue that I wrote my last year as a playwriting student at NYU in the dramatic this is writing undergrad. department. Undergrad. Undergrad. So, yeah. so I was like 20, 21 years old and like about to graduate with a playwriting degree. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And so I wrote this like thinly veiled personal monologue called Why I Can't Get Work that was about this young black gay man walking around New York wondering why life was so terrible. And like, it just was that. And then in grad school, I went in as a book writer who was learning how to write lyrics because I had never written lyrics before. I, I was a very musical person. Having grown up in Detroit, I took piano lessons from age eight. I was in an all city classical choir. I played piano for church. So I was, and I had lots of musical ideas, but I didn't know how to write lyrics. So then once I went to grad school and learned how to write lyrics, I had an idea of what song form was. And then I just happened to get an assignment from one of my teachers saying, if you're a lyricist who's never written music and you want to try it and vice versa. So taking what I learned about song form, I decided to take my musical impulses and try to write my own song. And the song that came out of that was the song Memory Song, which is the penultimate song on a strange loop. Five foot four high school gym, sneaking a cupcake. These are my memories, these are my memories. Shooting hoops off the rim, slow on the uptake. These are my memories, these are my memories. After gym, the locker room, my eyes photographing. Naked me, measures in at four and a half inches. These are my memories, these are my memories. Of one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. 
So again, at that time, it was only a standalone personal song. Um, a lot of the lyrics were different at that point, but like it was liked well enough by my classmates and my teachers that I was encouraged to continue writing my own music, even though for my thesis project, I was going to be paired with the composer, Rachel Peters, and we were right. working on our, our musical Only Children. And so I just kept writing music on the side just for myself. Um, and then I ended up working with this director who had read the monologue, heard some of the songs, which were all very personal, and they seemed to thematically overlap with what the monologue was. And so we started trying to figure out how to put them together, which is what turned it into this one-man show called Fast Food Town, which was a, a dead, it's a dead song that um, was this one, which is, you know, another sort of version of the monologue, but with music in it. And then I performed it one night at Ars Nova in like 2006 or seven or something. And like 20 people came, like two people walked out. And I like came from that experience, having learned something about the piece, but knowing that I didn't want it to be a one-man show. I didn't want it to be like a cabaret act. I wanted it to be a proper musical, albeit a probably unconventional one. And so then that's when me and the director ended up sort of partnering with the playwrights realm to crack like what the book of it was what what it was and so that's when it turned into a strange loop though it was still very different from what people would come to see later on at playwrights horizons you know once you're at that moment where you're you're cracking it you're taking it from this one-man show to a i think you called it a proper musical right yeah that you know um but i assume there's sort of like a lot that you need to learn to be able to take this and make it your first show that you're writing the book and the lyrics and the music for. What I had to learn was like what the story was. Like I'm a very story driven writer. And like, I just, because it was a piece that was like drawn from my personal experience and like, and yet trying to be, have something that has a beginning, middle and end like I didn't there was no beginning middle and end to my life and so like I because I didn't know what the formal conceit was because the piece is about a young black writer struggling but I was that so like it was almost like the piece was a mirror to me and the more I like whatever I moved it would move and so until I knew what it was it was always going to be this moving thing that like I could never catch up to until I was able to like capture exactly what the problem was in the story. I like was living my life in like I like and trying to go what's my struggle and therefore what's Usher's struggle. And like it wasn't until I started going to therapy that like I realized the problem was oh you think something's wrong with you and there is nothing wrong with you. And once I captured that, that was what Usher's problem was something's wrong with him he's got to fix it and that that married to this sort of strange loop sort of uh structure became like that then i knew what i was chasing a bit that's interesting it's almost like once you moved a bit beyond where usher is in his life that's right you had exactly enough distance to then shape i could see it I, i had like um perspective and i didn't before so like it then became like it was a character and it wasn't me it was like a different, and then I can like, then I was able to start fictionalizing things. I knew how to like move story points around, how to like shape the characters. Suddenly the thoughts had an identity because they didn't have one before that. 
they just were like rando characters. Um, it just be- like it just became they sharpened up quite a bit. So you're developing the show, and you are the writer. You are the composer. You are the lyricist. I know, for example, like I know a few writer directors who are always really careful not to make it too easy on the other half of themselves. You know, like if they've written a scene that's tough to direct, they're not going to rewrite the scene to make it easier to direct. You know, Mm -hmm. you're playing these three very important different roles, co-creating it. You know, uh, did you have moments like that where you were like, no, this is a composition problem. And even though I could fix it in this way, it has to be solved melodically or, you know, how, how did you negotiate your collaboration with yourself? I think because so much of the piece was like song based that like I think all my collaborators got along really well with each other and it just became a story problem no matter what like if it was a music problem it was a story problem Mm. if it was a lyric problem it was a story problem like it was always like what is going to tell the same the story of like all all of it like the turns of it the emotional arcs of it the the style of it the tone of it like all of that was like what is the actual story mm-hmm. but also because i'm someone who writes all three things i think of my director as my collaborator so like steven brackett ended up becoming super important and then as a matter of fact like he played like a huge a really crucial part in its development because when he came in to direct the very first reading that he worked on when he had read the script, he said, what if we cast this with all black and queer people? And because that's not what it had been before. Usher, the main character was black and queer, but the, the other characters were like, there was a reading where Aaron Markey played one of the parts. Like it was just like all kinds, of, like this piece had so many different pieces of development. Chad Goodridge played Usher one time. Like it was like so many things. It happened so many times. And like when he suggests, offered that up, that like it brought out so many things that were already implicitly a part of the piece. And so then I began writing explicitly toward that concept, which then started forcing it to change in a lot of ways. And then especially when we cast it, you know, like it just, then it was like, oh, the, it's these bodies that this story is on. right? And like, and that, and that just, and that created a whole other part of its journey. We'll be back with more of Isaac Butler's conversation with Michael R. Jackson in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our esteemed guests. Welcome back to Working. Now, let's return to Isaac's conversation with Michael R. Jackson. You know, one way I thought we could talk about your process and about this show is to look at a specific part of the show, a specific song. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... I thought maybe we could look at what I guess is in some ways the emotional climax of the show, right? Which is the the precious little dream slash AIDS is God's punishment. Uh, first, can you explain to our listeners what this track is and what's going on in it in the story of the show at this point for people who don't know it? Okay, so the thing that you need to know to sort of get into this track is that in A Strange Loop, Usher, the musical theater writer, is, you know, trying to write this musical, A Strange Loop, which is about a Black gay musical theater writer who works in Usher, blah, 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 as I described earlier. And as part of that story is dealing with lots of different forces in his life, which include his parents and his mother in particular, who is very sort of... um, Her vision of him as a writer is that he would be just like Tyler Perry, who writes gospel plays and and broad comic movies starring Medea. Like that's like to her, that's what a like a writer is. Or with does. an explicit Christian component. With an explicit with an explicit Christian component. She has a lot of sort of casual homophobia. She and his dad, the whole family, that is sort of aimed at him sort of relentlessly over the course of the piece. And um he and, and Usher is sort of disgusted by the idea of writing anything like Tyler Perry, but also his agent would also like for him to write something like Tyler Perry because it, he sees it as a moneymaker. And so Usher struggles with like not wanting to sell out, as it were, and to make something that he feels is not artistically worth his talents. But what ends up happening is that because his parents and his mother in particular are so like hard on him about his sexuality and he he finds that he can't communicate with them his mother in particular in any other way other than to sort of like create this gospel play that he pulls her into which and that is gospel some, play is AIDS is, is God's punishment. it's called AIDS God's punishment but it begins with an argument of just like a mother and son arguing about how disappointed she is in him and in how embarrassed she feels by the fact that his sort of explicitly gay-themed music has made it out into the air and the, the community back home has found out about it. My precious little dream It never ends with you. My Repeat, repeat, repeat. God, after all this time, why can't you give it up? Oh, no, you have to turn this on me. I know I'm a good mama. Because if you knew all the things that I'd been through... Huh. You have to cut me open to get you I'm glad, I'm glad they pulled your black right out of my stomach. You drew the ways you attacked Y'all me. Y'all had it said the homosexuality was just you for me. You drew the ways people fought. But you're 26 years old and you still you drew the ways people Why couldn't you just be the daughter I always wanted? I'll tell you why. It's because you're selfish. They're arguing about that. And then she sort of start, goes back to sort of the homophobic tirades, which causes him to sort of explode in creating this uh, sort of... Uh, satirical but like really charged gospel place 
styled after what he perceives Tyler Perry style gospel plays or gospel plays in general, frankly, to be like what they look like to him, but using his own life as uh, an experiences and point of view as the iconography of that gospel play. It is very important that we remember what God's word, your word, Tyler's word, and every fucking body else's word tells us. AIDS is God's punishment. Sing your song, brother, sing your song. For the man who ain't living right. You hear that, Curtis? AIDS is God's punishment. I love the Lord who heard my cry and pitied every groan. For he who sins in the night. Let him know, let him know, let him know. Hey! The gospel play and its music give you a kind of ready-made musical form for the AIDS is God's punishment part of the song. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Precious Little Dream does not have, there's not just like a mother's disappointment in her son song form sitting out there as far as I know anyway. So how did you figure out what the music vocabulary of that half of the song was going to be? So that half of the song used to be, was an early song that I wrote. And it used to be its own self-contained number that was just, I didn't know what it was going to be in or how it was going to fit in something. It was just its own little song. So it wasn't even in, you didn't even write it for Strange Loop. It was a a B-side. I mean, well, I think that like, I imagined that it might be in a Strange Loop, but like at that point, it, it was so early in my process that a Strange Loop wasn't even... Like, I hadn't even begun working with a director on the one-man show version. It just was, like, this song that, like, had some thematic overlap, but I didn't know what it, where or how it would fit into anything. Because it was such a massive song moment, um, just on its own. And then, like, you know, years later, at some point, like, it just made sense to return to it. And then even at that point... It used to be in an early draft of Strange Loop that 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 self-contained version was how the scene ended. And there was no AIDS God's Punishment at all. And, you know, for people who didn't see it at Playwrights Horizons, that moment also has sort of the show's biggest coup de teatre, which is the set transforms into the set of a gospel play. But over it are giant illuminated letters that say AIDS, right? HIV. They say positive. HIV. Sorry, sorry. HIV positive. They say, they say but HIV. The, but the, the cross is the positive. Right. <laughs> it's really awful. Right. And that and that was also another thing about process was that that wasn't written into the script. That was that was the set design. That was set design inspiring all the rest of us because when we when I saw that set model, I was like, oh, I can go even further in the text than what right. was there. Well, because that moment goes very, very far. I mean, I remember sitting in the audience watching in the and the audience's reaction because the stuff that's being said on stage in that moment is really hateful and upsetting. Yeah. Uh, and then it's framed in such a way that's hilarious. I mean, there's right. there's you know that that it becomes ridiculous. It, it's it's upsetting, and you're laughing your ass off at the same time. And you you and I. We've both lost friends to AIDS, you know. Right, and this, was had... an, and, that, and this was another component of it. Mm. Oh, okay, So yeah. at that stage, it was just this sort of like darkly funny satirical take on the homophobia of, in families and churches and everything. But then 
the thing that ended up happening was that like a very dear friend of mine who was actually originally slated to work on the show as the orchestrator, um, I found out that he had AIDS and that he had been hiding it from everyone for like a decade and had not been taking any medication, had not been like, and he sort of, I went to visit him in the hospital sort of in the last month of his life. And one thing that he shared with me was that he had felt like if God wanted him to live, that he would live and if God wanted him to die, he would die. And that he sort of jokingly over text had told me that he thought AIDS was God's punishment. It's referencing the show. Like, and it just became this like very real life thing for me in a way that it, not that it hadn't been, because I also in the development of the piece, like I found out that like a bunch of friends of mine were HIV positive who shared that with me um, after seeing readings of the show or whatever. And that just got me thinking in general about like black gay men and like HIV and like where, how are we dealing with this and who's writing about it? And like, I just was, cause I had been like in my own development because of like a lot of the sex negativity that was ingrained in me from childhood. I had a very different road than a lot of my peers who were positive, you know? And so just sitting face to face with like a friend who was dying, which I was deeply in denial about in that last month. Like I literally was like, okay, now you have told me and I'm going to save you. Like, that's like what I believed. And when he died, I just was, it destroyed me. Like I was just like a wreck. And to this day I get emotional about it because it's just something that I feel should not have happened. And yet when I look at, his circumstance, which is mirrors my own in so many ways, I see all the ways in which like society has failed uh, people with HIV and, and black gay men in particular. Um, and so then I was like, oh, this piece actually has to have a human cost to it. And so I sort of invented this character to sort of mirror him in a certain way. Um, but also just like the rage that I and Usher had about the way in which HIV AIDS is talked about given, you know, how deadly it is for people like us. Right. And then at the same time, I mean, there's that real cost to it, but then there is also this brilliant frame that allows you to stay in the theater while it's going on, you know, that's right. So it's so, so, um, because that's church. Because church is actually the first place that I learned theater because it's so presentational. And I grew up in the church playing like every Sunday, Sunday school at 920, service at 11, devotion. Somebody, a lady gets up and goes, announcements. The pastor's chorus will be singing on Thursday night at Mount Ebenezer Church, blah, 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 blah. Our thought for today is when praises go up, blessings come down like if like everything about going to a black church is like being in a play in a gospel play every week but the truth of that gospel play is also going home after you go you go after church you go to Popeyes to get a bucket of chicken and then you go home and then you get on a speakerphone and you start talking shit about what somebody was wearing or what somebody did or said at church that night and then but then you're gonna go back next Sunday and be like Praise Jesus, Lord, I'm available to you. And and those fucking homosexuals, they're going to burn. Like, it all is wrapped up in one, like, ongoing performance. 
And I wanted to try to capture as much of that as, as possible and all it's like gnarly, gross, but like joyful and entertaining moments, which is why I ask people after the show, there's a moment when they're invited to clap on the two and the three to the song. And I always ask people who go and see it, I said, did you clap or did you not clap? And it, it's not a trick question, but like I'm interested in like, did people, when they were asked to clap along to AIDS is God's Punishment, what was their natural inclination? Because that's part of what is the the pain and the ecstasy of like being in the church for me. Is that like the music is so beautiful and the content can be so painful. It's interesting. You know, that moment for me was very much like, well, I want to be a good audience member. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I want to support this work and it's asking me to do this thing. And the other part of me was like, wait, I can't, I can't do that with what they're asking me to clap for like that you know the the frame and the content there really get heightened within you yeah yeah and that and i think that that's but that's what it's like like if you want to know what being a, a a black gay man in the church is like that's what it's like is i want to and yet like it's constant pull and pull that's that's the, that's what it's like to be a black gay self or it can be it's one version of it that's the it's forcing the audience to like take on this identity that that may be close to them or it may not, but like you're you're being asked to cosplay. AIDS is God's punishment. Yes, you people, and then and then it's also like sort of a pointed finger at the theater. People are constantly asking musicals, wanting some black people to take them to church. To which I say, you want to go to church? Well, grab your Bible. Right. Let's go. Right. Let's go. You want you want people squalling to the heavens? They squall, but what are they squalling about? Yes, and, and you put some of the show's most satisfying vocal harmonies, or most you That's know right. surface level delicious vocal harmonies, right at that moment. Yeah, I wanted it to be like literally uh, a macabre celebration because the music is beautiful when you're in these scenarios, when you're in these churches. These people, these choirs, these soloists, they are like gorgeous. Like Kim Burrell has like one of the most beautiful voices ever. And she is one of the most homophobic women in mm-hmm. the Kojic church. Yeah, and totally. It, and, it, and unabashedly homophobic aids is god's punishment also has some choice words for pieces that are closer to a new york theater goer's heart like the normal heart and angels in america for for Mm -hmm. the black gay hiv positive experience being left out of those stories you you are writing a strange loop to some extent from a outside the industry pov right especially at the early part you're now Mm -hmm. I mean, you've won the Pulitzer Prize. You're now you're yes. now part of the industry. You are you're you're not an elder statesman, but you're a statesman at this point, right? Um, and one of the yes. most bracing things about that show is how it is both carefully crafted and feels uncensored and unfiltered at the same time. That's part of what what I what when I think of your work, I think of that. Is maintaining that now, you know that 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 you're sort of more part of that world. Is that a struggle for you? Oh, Isaac. Um, 
it is a struggle because, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like Rasid winning the Pulitzer. Like, it's opening doors for me. I'm grateful, humbled, all those things. But there's always going to be the part of me that is like, I'm just like that boy from Detroit. Like, I'm mm-hmm. just the one that runs his mouth and that, like, I like... Like, for example, one of the publicists related to the show asked me if I wanted to get, like, a blue check on Twitter. And I was like, no, because I want, I'm the people's... If I'm the Pulitzer Prize winner, I'm the people's Pulitzer Prize winner. I'm the, the, I'm the Wendy Williams of musical theater. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, I wanted to, like... There's an aspect of me that just wants to be with the people and not, like, on high. And yet, to some extent... That's how people perceive and or treat me, depending on where they intersect sometimes. And so, but like as a art as an artist, my impulse is to always tell the truth. Even if it's like inconvenient or or ugly or painful or whatever. Like I recently heard this description um, from Kate Bornstein of eloquence that she heard from like a Buddhist monk or something that describes the word eloquence as the telling of the truth to ease suffering and i have found that definition to be so useful a way to think about what it is that i want to do in my work and in my life frankly is that i'm gonna always try to resist anybody or anything that tells me that i have to like be careful because we're to me we're living in like uncareful times or times when like we need people to be loud and crazy and like but helpful you know like i i feel very much that theater is a is a place that can that should bring people together and that like that's what i love the most about it and that if i can create work that can help bring people together from all different backgrounds thoughts ideologies races class like you everybody comes sits in those seats in the dark and you share a story and i want to invite you all to give a shit and then take whatever energy you you can from that and then go out into the streets and make whatever revolution you want to make like i that to me is what i want to see like more than anything beyond any outside interventions upon the theater like i want to see people like actually inviting the audience to give a shit and like telling the fucking truth because there there's to me there's just been like a lot of lies that have been told and and we need to stop that Isaac, I am in love. I have just added Michael R. Jackson to my pantheon of great artists whose every utterance I now want to hear. I loved your exchange about how A Strange Loop was self-reverential rather than autobiographical. And it was fascinating to hear him talk about the challenge of like distancing himself from lived experiences when writing about them. I'm sure that will be something that will stick with me for a long time. 
But it's interesting because write what you know is the classic piece of writing advice. But a play or a short story, they can't just be diary entries, right? No, they absolutely cannot. And uh, I actually think write what you know. That piece of advice can often be quite harmful if taken to literally. One thing that Michael discovered in doing this show, which I think is really important, is that it's very difficult to write a work of art as opposed to, say, a diary entry or whatever. It's very hard to create that while you are actually going through the thing because you need to have some outside perspective. Um, Michael's show is not a memoir, but, you know, all memoirs, actually take place in two time schemes there's the time scheme of you experiencing it and the time scheme of you writing about it even if you never dramatize that second one and i think that's really important so i think to me i always think about it as and maybe this because i'm a nonfiction writer but you should write what you want to investigate or what you want to learn about or what you have burning questions about and that can be something that happened in your life but it doesn't have to be something that happened in your life and i think what makes a strange loop great isn't that it's based on Michael's life or his autobiographical or whatever. I mean, that's wonderful. But what makes it great is the ferocity with which he is willing to interrogate his life and the world and the strange looping structure that he finds for that interrogation. Amazing. I'm always in awe of musical theater. In New York, at least, the performers are the best singers there are, the best actors there are, the best dancers there are. But this interview really highlighted the degree of difficulty that Michael took on with A Strange Loop, writing the book, the lyrics, the music, in part because it's hard for one individual who has created all of those elements to then focus exclusively on a problem with the lyrics or a problem with story or whatever it is. So it was really fascinating to hear about the contributions that collaborators like the director or the set designer made to the final work, if indeed the play as it was performed at Playwrights Horizons can be considered the final work. Right. I mean, that's one of the weird things about theater, right? There is no final work. So long yeah. as it will be produced again, it's it's not finished on some level, even if the text actually is. Yeah. You know, nearly all art has collaboration somewhere in its creation. We often ignore it or we don't acknowledge it. It is very difficult in telling the story of an artist in 1,500 words and an essay to also include everyone they collaborated with or whatever. But in theater, the presence of collaborators and their effect on the work and our awareness about that is extraordinarily heightened. And so in this case, there's all sorts of important aspects about A Strange Loop that came about purely as a result of collaboration. One of the most significant is that all of the thoughts are played by black queer performers. If you've seen the show, you know that's essential to what the show is doing. The And so when, when Michael said in the interview, oh, it wasn't always going to be that, that was actually the director's idea. I mean, I was completely shocked because it just seems like naturally, of course, that's what the show should be. I'm very glad also that you asked him how the Pulitzer, I mean, I think I've just mentioned Pulitzer Prize winning. He won the Pulitzer, 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 Pulitzer. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've mentioned it about 10 times just in the course of our conversation um, and how that has changed his working life. I'm very glad you asked him about that. He gave a bracingly honest answer. Do you think that theatre is maybe just, even for the arts in general, particularly awards obsessed? In a word, Yes. Uh, in a lot more words, I guess I would say this. Theater is an extremely difficult industry. Um, I don't think it's as cutthroat as it's often portrayed. I mean, I actually think people are pretty supportive in a lot of ways, but it's a very difficult industry because there are vastly more numbers of talented people than there are jobs for those people. And the 
incredible disparity between those two things just has a lot of effects in every area of the industry. And then on top of that, there's been a big drive over the last eh, 10 to 15 years to expand the number of new plays and premieres that are produced on America's stages. And so that means there's a lot more people in the mix and it increases the power of things like awards because you have to be able to differentiate whatever show you're offering, right? So the next show that Michael has, it will say the new musical from the Pulitzer Prize winning writer of A Strange Loop in its description somewhere. And that's pretty likely to get someone to buy a ticket. I mean, I'm more likely to buy the ticket, Mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to Michael about it is... You know, winning something like the Pulitzer is a real life-changing event. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that he's set for life financially, but it does open new opportunities. And it means that people pay attention to him in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And like all life-changing events, that can be difficult to manage and it has upsides and downsides. And so I was just very curious about what it was like to experience that in real time. And that feels like a great place to end this week. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, or if you want to hear great stories about Liz Fair and Tyler Perry, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here at Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash workingplus. Thank you to Michael R. Jackson for being our guest this week. And huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between you, June, and the (laughs) writer, Kurt Anderson. Until then, get back to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.